Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Stand by. Here we go. It's a time to go with Howard David Live and a bite of the Big Apple with Mark Canizero of the New York Post. Uh, Mark, obviously, is, in addition to covering the uh, New York Jets, is also the uh, newspaper's beat writer for golf. And we're just talking about Kapalua in Hawaii. Um, my wife and I played the course. And I don't remember. Maybe you can refresh my memory. There's a par five that's, I want to say it might be 18, that goes downhill. Yeah, that's definitely 18. Okay. That's spectacular. Yeah. So it we, we, the day we played it, the wind is blowing downwind, and it's downhill. So I proceeded to bust the drive, and I knew I hit it well. So by the time we got there, I did a measurement on it, and I hit it 345 yards. So I said to my wife, here's what I'm going to tell everybody I know. I hit a drive at the 18th at Capaloa, 345 yards. We're not going to mention anything about it being downhill or downwind. <laughs> or, the double bo- or the double bogey you probably took after that anyway, right? No, actually, I, I only <laughs> I had I had a six iron to the green in two. And so uh, I was thrilled, obviously. And no, I didn't make the eagle, but I did make a birdie. All right, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's funny. That tournament that comes on this time of year, obviously every year, and for us in the Northeast, you know, you, you just you're staring at that. I mean, it looks fake. I mean, it literally looks like a fake postcard. Yeah. And you just, it, 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 like, for me as a golf junkie, and I know you are too, it it almost hurts that you want to be there so badly. You know what I mean? It's and, and particularly for those, I, I've been there once. I went there years and years ago, probably twenty something years ago, and and just out of more not to cover the tournament, just to go, just you know, a little recreation and leisure so i played a lot of golf over there and and uh and I, you know so i just look at that on tv and it just you know it, it hurts you want to be there so badly okay. and you're looking outside and there's snow and it's 20 degrees out and you know and it, but it is to some degree it's a little bit of a signaling that golf golf season is around the corner for us even the northeast here even as we sit here and it's 10 degrees out today or whatever it is so um yeah it's a, it's a it's it's very much of a tease uh for all of us here and uh you know soon enough we'll be teeing it up yeah it's uh it's interesting because i was lucky enough to do the pro bowl for cbs radio and so we had 14 years of doing the pro bowl and playing golf in hawaii which was great unfortunately i couldn't stay you know more than like a few days because i had other obligations but uh yeah it's uh i mean i always got the best thing about going to hawaii is when the doors open to the plane and you step out you feel this immediate relaxation in your entire body. Yeah, you know, Howard, I had a, I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day. We were talking about who also had played over there. And I don't know if you noticed this. You've been over there a number of times, so it's maybe a little different. But I literally, if I played, I probably played seven times while I was over there, you know, uh, you know, in and around Maui, in Kapalua, the Bay Course, you know, a bunch of places around there, and, uh, you know, Wailea. And I found consistently that my scores were maybe three shots lower per round because I think you're so relaxed when you're there. You're like, I mean, you know, if you hit a bad shot, you're like, I'm in Hawaii. Who cares? You know, <laughs> right. it doesn't. You know, you don't get mad. You know, I mean, and I, I don't know if you found that, but I, but you mentioned that relaxed vibe that you have as soon as you as soon as you deplane. You know, I felt that on the golf course because you know I'm not somebody I'm not a club thrower or anything, but I you know I I like most people you tr- you expect more out of yourself you expect you should every we all every golfer expects they should have done better. You know, I've never walked off a, a round of golf thinking I should have been a couple shots lower, 
and playing over there, I swear, I, I mean, and it wasn't just like, you know, there was a, there was a body of work there. It was, you know, every round consistently, I was like two, three, four shots lower than normal. And I really believe it was just because of the whole sense of calm that you had being over there and just not really care in the world because you're yeah. in Hawaii. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, we used to, we, as I mentioned, going there to do the Pro Bowl, uh, and in Oahu, uh, there was a singing group over there called the Society of Seven. Uh, there were seven Hawaiian guys that were they're really very entertaining. They did bits and skits and sang and all of that. And I became friendly with their leader, Tony Ribovar. And I just found out a couple of days ago that he passed away at the age of 76, just uh, wow. about a week or so ago. And I felt very bad because he, he treated us really, really well. Anyway, let's move on to... Uh, the business of the day, and I read your column with interest today on the Jets and uh, the meeting that you had with Joe Douglas and Robert Sala. Uh, kind of a, I guess, a, uh, an end review and a, a look ahead. Uh, you think that uh, that uh, it becomes mandatory for the Jets to win next year to keep Joe Douglas in the general manager's job? I, I you know, Howard, I do. Um, I, I mean. Listen, you know they gave they gave a six year contract. Um, the Jets don't want to they don't want to fire anybody as that nobody does. But uh, you know I think the point that I try to make in the column today was you can't. Okay, they had two wins. You know in, t- in 2020. Now they bring a rookie rookie coach and rookie quarterback in. Now they're at four wins. Okay, you know you can't go and get six or seven wins next year and say hey we're you know we've you know. We've added our win total. We're on the upper. We're on the upper, upper trend, and think that that's a good job. You know, you have to be with the resources this team has, which is four draft picks in the, in the top thirty-eight of this upcoming draft, including the number four and the number ten overall, and two in the second round. You got four picks in the first two rounds. You, you conceivably could get four starters out of that draft, even if you're, you know, even if it's three out of those four starters immediately, immediate immediate starters. So you got that, and you have you have what's you know right now looks like it's going to be somewhere upward of sixty million dollars in uh, salary cap room to spend. And you know, I actually had a conversation with Damian Woody uh, this morning, the Jets, uh, you know, former offensive lineman, and now ESPN does great work. And you know, Damian and I were talking about it. Damian's like, you know, there's no, re- and this is what I wrote today. There's no reason the Jets can't be and shouldn't be competing for at least a playoff spot next year. I'm not saying they're going to win the division and, and, and unseat New England and Buffalo, and but why why shouldn't they? The Cincinnati Bengals last year were 4-11-1, and, and they just won their division, okay? They're hosting a playoff game next week, this, this coming weekend. You know, why can't the Jets do that with the resources they have, you know? and, and, and if it, So my point on Joe, and I'm not trying to usher him out the door. I don't want to fire anybody. I don't like to see anybody get fired. But, but you know, the bottom line is, you know, this will be his third full pre uh, off season, I should say. Um, not to mention he was, you know, he, he was there, you know, more than a half a year prior to that. Um, you know, you can't with the resources they have, you can't go six and eleven next year. It's just not. It's not good enough. You know, and and if, if Zach Wilson looks like he has not made the improvements that you expect the number two overall pick to make in year two. Then, you know, we have serious questions about, you know, the expenditure of the number two overall pick on, on that quarterback, right? So that those are all a potential. And again, I don't, I, I'm a positive person, but I'm try, not trying to be too negative. But those are potential significant stains on Joe, on Joe Douglas's resume if these things occur, if, if, if the quarterback doesn't end up panning out, if, you know, they don't get starters out of this. But here's a key. If they don't use that some of that sixty million dollars to be aggressive in free agency and go get players, veteran players, potentially a star player, even to throw in there, you know, to, to, to build around Zach Wilson offensively, you know, Corey Davis, you know, he's a solid receiver who had a very meager year this year. You know, he you know he was one of their free agent acquisitions this past off season. They need to do more than that, you know, and and Elijah Moore is good, but they need more than that. You know, Braxton Berrios needs to be re-signed, but Braxton is is exactly what he was this year. He's a terrific, you know, role player who's a great slot receiver, you know, who's also a terrific special teams guy. But he's not probably a number two receiver. So you need more. 
And I feel like Joe Douglas last year just dipped his water kind of very cautiously in the free agent pool. I think he needs to, you know, he needs to hit on a couple of big time free agents this offseason, you know, to make this team a factor next year. And if he doesn't, and if the quarter, God forbid, the quarterback doesn't improve, then, you know, you have to question his tenure. I mean, it's just the way it is. It's part of the business. It's what he signed up for. He is Mark Cannizzaro, columnist for the New York Post, taking a bite of the Big Apple with Mark. So let's look at some things here. The draft picks of last year, Michael Carter, two Michael Carters, uh, one the running back, who I thought uh, showed more uh, than an occasional burst. He looked like he was coming on in the, la- in the second half of the year. Uh, Elijah Moore, uh, he missed, what, six games. Corey Davis missed eight games. Uh, Crowder missed five games. These are all weapons that uh, Wilson didn't have. And then you throw in uh, the the offensive line. Beckton, what did he play, one game, and he was gone for the year. That's so, a problem. Yeah, that's yeah. a big problem, Howard. I mean, you know, Beckton is, was one of the – he was in the 2020 class, which has so far been very suspect, right? Uh, but, you know, on the other side of that, you got Elijah Vera Tucker, uh, the guard that they drafted, and who's been an immediate starter. It looks like he'd be, he'll be on that line for the next decade. Um, but Joe had a really – you know. T- to jump into what you were talking about, I thought Joe had a terrific draft in 21. I mean, you know, every really almost every one of the guys that he drafted has been a contributor. 2020, you know, your two top picks, you know, Beckton played part of one game this year, and uh, Denzel Mims had no catches in the last four or five games of the year and still has not scored a touchdown in his career. So, you know, those, those are your number one and two draft picks right there, you know, in 2020. So, you know, I mean, I know they say all the right things. I think Beckton will be okay. I mean, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't profess to know him well enough to know whether he has a motivation problem or whatever. But you know, that injury was supposed to be a, you know, was supposed to be a two month injury. It turned out to be a four month injury. You know that he had, and we never, never saw him again. Um, so, you know, he's got to lose weight. He's got to get in better shape, and he's got to be more committed. Because man, if that guy is, you know, if he, if he plays up to his 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 talent. You know, you throw in there with Vera Tucker and, and you know, and the, the George Fant, by the way, while we're killing Joe Douglas or, or being negative, George Fant, the tackle that, that Douglas brought in, was a fantastic pickup. And, uh, you know, was a raw, raw guy when he came in here and, and ended up really solidifying that line, particularly with Beckton out all year. So, you know, there's a lot of positive things, you know, to do, you know, to, to look at. But they just need so many more players, you know, and, and uh and they do need that 2020 class, you know, a lot of which is kind of a lost cause already, you know, to step up. You know, I mean, right now, the only guy out of that 2020 class that's really done anything is Bryce Hall, you know, their cornerback, who was certainly not perfect. You know, he was a he was a decent starting quarterback, but he's not exactly, you know, Revis Island out there, you know. So, you know, there's a lot to be done. And uh, but there's also a lot of good things that Douglas has done in terms of the draft and and 2021 draft was fantastic. Uh, you know, if the quarterback pans out, right? I mean, yep. he's a big, he's a big if right now. Well, question: his, The last five games Wilson played, he did not throw an interception. That's a positive, but his touchdown to interception ratio was not great. Not sterling when you look at the overall picture. So, so now, w- w- what are you looking for? What are you looking for in free agency? I mean, Douglas reportedly is a uh, improve your team by the via the draft. So you got 60 million as you've indicated. Uh, how far can the $60 million go? Uh, and I saw in your column today you're talking about the corner from the Patriots and uh, and maybe another player here or there. The question is, do they have enough weapons when you look at the receiving core that, as I mentioned, missed a bunch of games? But let's let's go the optimum route. Uh, they play, they're healthy next year. Uh, they all play. Do they have the receiving core and the running back by committee core that can make this team a good football team? I don't think they have the receiving core to do that, no. Um, I think they need to dip into free agency um, and, and or the draft um, there. But I'd like to see them get a veteran, you know, free agent receiver. You know, a guy that's interesting to me, although he's not a receiver, is the Miami tight end who I mentioned in my column, is Mike Gusecki. Gusecki yeah. is, you know, is going to be a free agent. Uh, obviously, there's, there's, there's a coaching change down there. Um, you know, again, he's not going to, he's not a game changing player, but he's a very, very productive, you know, pass catching tight end, not a blocker, really, not at all, really. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Jets have not really had that. You know, there's a bunch of, you know, free agent receivers out there, I mean, that potentially, 
You know, I mean, Chris Godwood has been hurt from Tampa Bay is, is due to be a free agent. Devontae Adams from the Packers, you know, Mike Williams from the Chargers and Allen Robinson, Chicago. I mean, there's some guys out there. The question is, you know, whether those teams are going to retain them. I can't imagine Adams playing anywhere other than wherever, wherever Aaron Rodgers is. Uh, but, uh, you know, those guys are out there, you know, um, you know, the J.C. Jackson, I think, which I threw out there, I thought was interesting because, first of all, the Jets, you know, DB situation was really awful this year, very much so starting with because it was an inexperience, but then they had a bunch of injuries, which made it even worse. But, you know, I, the Patriots very well may, you know, uh, you know, put a franchise tag on, on J.C. Jackson. The, the, the interesting thing is that Belichick is not a guy that usually pays big contracts to his guys. He's just not that guy. So I'll be surprised if the Patriots give Jackson a, a big contract, but you know I've been wrong before too, plenty of times. So, uh, but there are other cornerbacks out there to look at and DBs. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, getting back to your, you know, your point about, you know, I, I think running back right now, Howard, I'm okay with just the way they play as a running back by committee anyway. So you know, there's no need to go and get some bell cow guy. You know the, the game isn't played that way anyway anymore, right? The Jets kind of tried to do that with Le'Veon, and I actually thought that was a good signing at the time, full disclosure, and didn't work out. Um, you know, Le'Veon was never the same. You know, since he took that year off for the contract dispute, um, so I think they're okay at running back. There's there's, there's depth there, uh, and I do like you say. I mean, I've I've really enjoyed watching Michael Carter. You know, play football this year. He's really really, you know, that's a terrific pick. You know, for where particularly for where they got him. Um, but receiver absolutely needs that, that needs to be built more around uh, Zach. Zach Wilson needs more skill position talent to throw to than he's had this year. You know, um, there's no question about it. Even when healthy, you know, and then, then they haven't been healthy. I mean, if he, even if he had all the guys around him who weren't hurt, you know, say Corey Davis didn't get hurt and Jamison wasn't didn't miss all those games. You know, Barrios just missed the very end, obviously, the last game. But, uh, you know, Elijah missed some games. Even if you had all of those guys there, that's a solid, okay receiving core. But they need better than that, in my opinion. So go out and get a star if you can. Land a big big guy, big star, you know. Um, you know, some of the things that, uh, that, that Damien and I were talking about today on the phone, uh, you know, he remembered when they went out and got Braylon Edwards at San Antonio. You know, San Antonio went south. You know, after he was a very, he was a big factor in 2010, and then he went off the reservation after that and just was a bad guy. But, uh, you know, Braylon Edwards was a solid player. Even even Brandon Marshall was a really good player for a year or two when they brought him in. You know, bring some guys, some veteran guys in like that, you know, to supplement the youth, you know, that, that the Jets have around Zach. And, uh, you know, I think the offensive line is, is on an upward trend, particularly if Makai comes back healthy. Uh, you know, I think they, you know, will, you know, there's been some hits and misses on the offensive line on the part of Douglas, but, you know, right now it's not a terrible line. You know, I mean, the Jets ran the ball fantastically, Howard, if you recall. Yeah. The last part of the season up until the game, the last game in Buffalo, which they were anemic across the board, but, you know, they really had a, the last, you know, I don't know, three, three or so games right before that Buffalo game. They, they I mean, they, they were one of the better running teams in the league. So, I, yeah, just, they just, they, they need more players, you know, and, you know, Joe Douglas said, you know, yesterday, look, you know, I mean, listen, package those players and trade for somebody, too. I mean, they've got, you know, they've got a lot of draft picks. They've got volume and quality in the draft pick, you know, a lot, right? So they got the four of the top 38, plus I think they've got, I want to say they have 10 picks overall, um, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, use even some of those middle-round picks and go scoop yourself up a veteran receiver that'll be productive and help. You know, the trick is to try not to do what Gettleman did, you know, when he thought he was doing the right you know, right by Daniel Jones with the Giants and going to get Kenny Galladay, and he got 34 catches and no touchdowns out of him, or 37 right. catches and zero touchdowns. I mean, that's the trick of free agency. You have to hit on these guys. Well, Canizero of the New York Post, uh, let's let's look at, uh, they were 0-6 against the AFC East this year. Uh, obviously, that's, that's, a, that's a remedy for disaster. But I'm looking ahead to, to next year's schedule, uh, not schedule, teams that they're playing both home and away. And they're playing eight teams out of the, uh, the next year's schedule that are not in the playoffs this year. Now, neither are the Jets. But uh, having said that, the schedule is not that daunting that, uh, you know, a significant upgrade here or there, and all of a sudden they do become uh, a playoff contender. But before we get ahead of ourselves, 
the, the whole methodology of this organization. They haven't been to the playoffs in 11 years. And after a while, you, you become used to losing. Well, Robert Sala was brought in to kind of change the culture. If you had to give Robert Sala a grade, A, B, C, or D, from this year, what would you give him? I'd give him a C plus. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have a hard time giving any, anybody a better, you know, a B or better, you know, when they, when you're four and thirteen. But you know, there are also circumstances, right? So um, I think that Robert brought a lot of energy and enthusiasm into the building. Um, you know, there were some mistakes on and off the field. You know, some some decisions on the field that weren't great, which are going to happen. And he's the first guy to you know to 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 uh, you know to acknowledge that. Um, and I do think he's bringing a good culture here. I mean, it's a very, very upbeat, energetic culture. Uh, it's a very accountable culture, Howard. Uh, you know, interestingly, um, you know, Salah's been accountable himself, but it's tri- you could see it's trickled down. If you recall, um, you know, the, the very questionable call that you know that was made in the Tampa game, where where they, you know, that. that which ended up being a, a, a two-yard quarterback sneak attempt on the part of Wilson, which should have the ball should have gone to, to Barrios doing a little jet sweep thing there. That was a miscommunication. It wasn't handled well between Sala and Mike and Mike Lafleur, the offensive coordinator. Sala totally blamed you know himself and the coaches right after the game. Um, you know Wilson blamed himself, and then when we when we spoke to uh, to, to Lafleur, you know. A couple of days later, Lafleur absolutely took all of the blame himself. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Ulbrich, the uh, the Jets' defensive coordinator, has also been extremely uh, stand up and accountable for you know errors he he's made in terms of you know whether it's been scheme or how they've handled things and whatnot. So you like to see some accountability. You know, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm referring to that because I felt like Joe Douglas, to a large, just to a, to a degree, yesterday was accountable. He said, "Let's go." You know, I mean, he was kind of speaking the obvious. He said, "I got to be better. Two wins, you know, last year and four wins this year, and six wins in two years is not good enough. You know, I got to get better players for Joe. I mean, for Robert, I get that. So there's an accountability there, yes. But you know, I, I, I refer back to the Giants general manager who barely ever spoke to the media and basically went out quietly yesterday when he was asked to clean his desk out Gettleman and I'm not trying to you know stamp on Gettleman and you know whatnot but the reality is that's a guy that never took any accountability you know and uh you know to the to the bitter end you know he was asked you know in the press box at MetLife Stadium at the finale to if he had a couple words and he basically just waved wave reporters off so you know that's the culture that was with the Giants at the top you know I don't see that with the Jets you know certainly with with the coaching uh, and, and, you know, a general manager. So, you know, I think that's positive. Uh, so I would give Salah a C or C plus, you know, he was a rookie, you know, considering all the stuff. I mean, listen, if you're looking at records, you're going to give him an, an F or, or a D or D minus. Right. But there's more to it than that, you know? So that's where I go. C plus. I would, uh, I'm, uh, just hear me out for a second here. Uh, in, in thinking back to the Jacksonville game, uh, now, no, on the overall scheme of things, it's not about, you know, these are two teams that were not good. But in the Jacksonville game, they had a chance to tie the game uh, when it was 9-6 and they elected to go for it on fourth down. I thought that was foolish. Now, this is Robert Sala wasn't there. It's when he was on the protocol, and so he didn't coach yeah, the yeah. team. And, and, and full disclosure, I'm listening. I, I, I was covering the Giants that week on the road, so I was not there either, I don't believe so. I definitely didn't cover that game. So, But, yeah, so I'm listening to you. Go ahead. All right, so then later on in the game, um, they got a chance to uh, to uh, go up seven in, with a four-point lead, and they fake a field goal on fourth down. Now, I know that Salah wasn't there. So, uh, was, that, was that Middleton that was coaching the team then? Yes, that was Middleton, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, he, 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 doesn't, he goes for it on fourth down with a fake field goal. I'm saying, what are you doing? Now, if Salah was there, could it have been different? But the bottom line is that LaFleur was there. And if he made that call, then we go to the next game against Tampa. And uh, and I had this conversation with with your colleague, Steve Serby. Uh, he, he disagreed with me, and, and that was okay. Uh, I thought that when they were up by four late in the game and elected to go for it on fourth down, which, as you say, the, the, uh, the quarterback sneak when it was fourth and two, this came, this came after a timeout. And, and I'm yeah. thinking to myself – 
you couldn't get you, you couldn't communicate what needed to be done right then and there during a timeout. So Serby's feeling was he had no problem with him going for it on fourth down. He said, Steve, neither did I. On fourth and one, I have no problem. Fourth and two, it's a big difference. So you give Tom Brady, and we've seen this movie how many times? You give Tom Brady a minute and 20 seconds to go down the field, he's going to do it. So you had a chance to lock up the game. All right, you didn't make it on fourth down. Would it have been better if they kicked the field goal and go up by seven? Now the worst that can happen is Brady's going to take the game to overtime. So I'm I'm questioning Michael LaFleur, but I'm not totally blaming him. I'm just wondering what accountability LaFleur has on the offense as it as it relates yeah, to Zach Wilson. I'm I'm it's interesting. I I still feel like I would have been okay kicking the field goal there uh, to go up 7. Um you know, I under, you know, I, I get it. We're all expecting Brady to march. Listen, if if, it, if they're kicking a field goal to go up 3 versus trying to score a touchdown there or something, say it was fourth and goal from the 1 and you're deciding whether to go up 7 or 3, you know, or even maybe even you know, fourth and 2. I don't know. I I'm kind of just I wouldn't have minded seeing him go up seven there, you know, and, uh, um, uh, but I also had no problem with him going fourth down there. Obviously they, they executed it poorly, you know, the, in between the coaching, you know, the, the, the communication of the coaches between the coaches and the actual execution of the play. Uh, you know, I under, I completely understand going up for there. And I, I get it. The Jets are not the, you know, the Jets are the 32nd ranked defense in the league, so it's not like you're going to say to your coach, well, trust your defense to hold them. But, you know, it was 90 seconds or whatever it was, 93, whatever the number was, and I don't believe Tampa had any timeouts left, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I don't know. You know what? I, and I, I know I'm in the minority in this, but I think I would have rather seen him kick the field goal and go up seven yep. and just hope they can keep him out of the end zone. Yep. I think that's the where I would have gone. But I'm like you. If it was fourth and one, I that would have been different, but that was a long. I think it was it was it was it was a solid two, yep. right? And I don't know. I, I I you know I know I'm sounding a little wishy washy on this, but I, my, you know my thought right away was to go up seven, just try to keep him out of the end zone with everything you can, you know. And uh, at the end of the day, you know the shame was, and, and this is another area where Ulbricht was was very accountable. Um, you know, the Jets have been coming after Brady quite a bit in that game and disrupting him, and they didn't do that on that drive. And they ended up playing the old quote-unquote prevent defense kind of a form of it. And, you know, they gave up too many chunks of yards and let him get down the field too quickly. Um, and, you know, we all saw what happened. So, you know, and I th- he, you know, he certainly second-guessed himself on that as well. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen, that's – the Jets, you know, I like how aggressive – they've been and I, I do know that Sala said later in that after that Jacksonville game when we spoke to him you know that he you know he had gone over the game plan with Middleton and they wanted to be aggressive they were going to go for some fourth downs and they were going to get aggressive I also really like what what LaFleur did started doing after that 56 to 13 loss or whatever 50 whatever the number was for the Patriots he really started incorporating a lot of trick plays and a lot of them worked I mean there was some good creative stuff that the Jets threw in there you know, that so many teams are, are petrified to try. So, I, you know, I think that there was a lot of positives. You know, LaFleur got a lot better when he went upstairs, you know, when, when, when Zach got hurt. Um, it just kind of it, it was incidental that he ended up going upstairs, you know, because he didn't need to be downstairs holding his hand when, you know, when the veteran quarterbacks came in. So, you know, I'm not that Mike White's a huge veteran, but you know what I'm saying. So, um, yeah, I'm rambling a little bit. I'm sorry. I apologize. But I getting back to the uh, the Tampa game, um, I was totally okay with them going for it on fourth down, but I think I would have rather just seen them kick the field goal, go up seven, and just try to keep Brady out of the end zone. Yeah, I completely agree. Let me get your feeling on this before I let you go. Mike Zimmer was, has been fired, Mike Nagy in Chicago, uh, uh, Fangio in Denver, but the one that shook me was Brian Flores in Miami. Uh, and, yeah. and Dave Hyde wrote a column where uh, he said they got it backwards, meaning that he would have fired the general manager, not the coach. I bet this. I'm going all in on this. Brian Flores is going to get another job. He might get another job immediately. That's how good a coach I think he is. Yeah, um, I uh, I agree with you. I, you know, I, a couple of guys I respect down there. Um, some writers, uh, my friend Armando Salguero, who you know well because you, you were down that market. Armando was never a big Flores fan uh, about the way he kind of 
got along with people in the building and treated people. Um, and I, I and this, these were conversations I had with Armando during the season when you know when the Dolphins were in the middle of that seven game winning streak. Um, and he was you know I'm not I'm not ratting him out because he wrote a column you know um, saying he thought the Dolphins wrote you know did the right thing in firing Flores. It is very unusual a guy that wins eight of his last nine games you know uh, and beat the Patriots twice. Oh by the way, Bill Bel- Belichick in the division do that but obviously you know uh, it sounds like you know Greer who's the GM is a, from what I hear is a pretty good politician and it sounds like there was a little power struggle there perhaps um, you know whether uh, you know it was probably over Tua um, you know it sounded like uh, you know Flores is not a Tua guy and Greer is and and, and Greer won but uh, um, you know it sounds to me like there are some reputation flaws that Flores is going to have to overcome when he goes and interviews in his next spots because there certainly were some word down in Miami that he didn't get along with people very well and and whatnot. That, you know, and that's coming from me, who is I, I I've only spoke to the guy on the phone. I don't know him at all. You know, but you know I, I'm going by things I've read. You know, by the people that are in the know down there. You mm-hmm. know, one of whom you just referenced, obviously. You know, you know Hyde is a respected writer down there who's who's around that. So yeah, but I mean bottom line is i you know the guy obviously is a good coach i mean you know he won 10 games last year um you know and won seven out of his or eight out of his last nine this year so you know I, and with all these openings i would expect that he's going to get you know pretty good hard look and to be a little bit surprised if he's not hired with one of these openings but you know he, he probably has some things to answer to because all these owners are paranoid you know about <laughs> reputations things like that right real quick Joe Judge, does he hang on to his job, or do the Giants wait to hire a general manager? Well, I think they're going to wait to hire a general manager. Um, I, I think the fact that, that nothing was said yesterday means that, and I might be wrong on this, maybe something comes out today, but um, I felt like if he was going to be gone via ownership, it would have happened yesterday, Howard. Uh, I don't really believe he should be fired. As bad as it's looked, uh, there's been just some really bad circumstances. Look at the quarterbacks he's been playing in the last six weeks. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm, you know, anytime I bring these things up, you know, the giant fan screams, you know, that it's a, an, ex, an excuse for him, and it, obviously it is. But you know, I also, you know, I'm on record, you know, in, in writing at the post, you know, I mean, the guy, the guy was hired during the pandemic last year. He basically had to build his team over Zoom, you know, which is very difficult to do. And uh, uh, I just don't feel like, other than you know, the rant in Chicago, and I was there, I was in the room, I covered the game. Um, you know, I, I don't really feel like he's done anything to really embarrass the organization. I know that ownership was, you know, Mara, John Mara was not happy with that 11-minute filibuster, you know, because of some of the places that he went with it. Um, and, uh, you know, embarrassing some other coaches from other organizations, uh, you know, without naming names, yep. you know. But, you know, Ron Rivera and Shermer certainly were thrown under the bus. Anyway, uh, but I do believe at the end of the day that, the reason we haven't heard anything about his status is because, you know, Mara and Tish want to get a GM in here, and I think they want to make a collaborative decision. I think that Mara is going to say, I don't want to fire this guy. I don't want to fire guys every two years like he's been on the cycle of doing. But I also think if they hire somebody, a respected GM that comes in and is very, very adamant and builds a very good case for bringing his own head coach in, that the Maras will listen to that. So I think that's kind of where we're going right now which is a weird spot. And, you know, hopefully they're going to hire a GM fairly soon because, you know, Joe Judge is kind of, you know, and his whole staff is kind of hanging in the air, but that's the nature of the business. Yeah. Hey, Mark, thanks again for your time. Appreciate your insight. Uh, and you stay safe. Thanks. Thanks, Howard. It's Mark Catazzaro of the New York Post. Yeah, what he says is right on the money. Uh, the, the Giants, the problem with the Giants is, there's a lot of coaches that are going to be hired. Look what the six availabilities right now. So what you can say that there's, there's going to be a lot of coaches that are going to be swallowed up before, if the Giants do separate themselves um, from uh, from Joe Judge, they may not have that plentiful list to go by. Hi, Howard. Well, let's go to talk to Greg Logan of New York Newsday. Uh, so... The Nets last night go into Portland, Greg, and here's Portland without Lillard, without McConnell, uh, and the and the Nets didn't have uh, James Harden, but they did have Cole, they did have Kyrie and they did have Durant, and they lose to Portland one fourteen to one hundred eight. 
which which I was surprised at. I thought the Nets would go in there and just blow their doors off, but the 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 unknown is what reaction the Jets the, the Nets would have after playing a game on Sunday afternoon, getting on a plane going cross country three thousand miles and playing a game last night. First of all, I thought that was terribly unfair, and I don't understand why the NBA couldn't come up with another plan. Well, I agree. Uh, there should have been a different uh, type of scheduling. I've honestly, all the years I've covered the NBA, I don't think I've ever seen uh, a cross country back to back like that. Uh, Steve Nash said last night that uh, he can't ever recall in his career having a, a six hour flight before the second game of a back to back. And, uh, uh, and he did say that he felt the Nets were just gassed at the end. Uh, yeah, they didn't have Harden, but they got a fresh Irving, so that should make up for uh, not having Harden. And as you said, uh, the the Blazers were without their, their two big guys, plus really they, they were without four starters. And so you would think that uh, the Nets still could find a way to pull that game out. Uh, so that, but Nash did sort of give him the excuse about the flight. Uh, the rookie Dayron Sharp said it was the longest flight he'd ever been on in his life. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Uh, but, but then, uh, when Kevin Durant was asked, uh, about the, uh, the length of the trip, he wasn't having it. He said, he's not going to make any excuses for flights or NBA travel because he said the whole season is messed up anyway with all the covid and everything else and uh and you just have to be a professional and go out there and play and he felt they had a chance to win which they did uh they were down four with uh, uh just over two minutes left and uh uh and portland hit three big threes coming down the stretch and that was the thing was in the first half uh the nets held portland to three of 15 uh three-point shooting and in the second half, Portland hit 12 of 23 threes. And so that was really uh, the difference in the game. And the Nets couldn't do anything uh, to get out and uh, stop them at the three-point line. So so uh, Durant gave uh, Portland credit for where credit was due for, for pulling out the win. And he faulted the Nets for not doing enough to win. And they're just not uh, – the fact is that since uh, – since they had all the guys going to COVID protocols, they've been struggling with consistency uh, uh, ever since Christmas. Good performance last night from Cam Thomas, who had 21 points on 8 of 12 shooting, including 4 of 7 from the three-point line. And you mentioned Dayron Sharp. He contributed with 14 as well. Yeah, you know, Sharp uh, actually was kind of a revelation off the bench because Nick Claxton had been playing very, very well recently, and he started at center, and he was against Yosef uh, Nurkic, and Nurkic just banged him so hard under the basket that uh, Claxton pick up, picked up three fouls in three minutes and went to the bench uh, in the first quarter. He came back in the second half and played a little bit, but uh, Daron Sharp was the guy uh, who, who really showed up uh, for the Nets, you know, uh, the 14 points was his first uh, double figures game, and he also had three blocks. And so he, he played a really good game. He was kind of an eye-opener, and, and he has uh, a big athletic, physical body. Uh, if he can uh, get a little more run, and he will get a lot more run on this uh, road trip because they're, they're basically going deep into the bench to try and keep as many people fresh as they can. But he's a guy who could step up and make a difference, uh, I think. You know, if, if he can follow up uh, with the way he played last night. And he, he said that one of the guys uh, on the team told him, you know, if, if you could rebound in these games, the way you rebound against us in practice, uh, people would have a problem. So, uh, you know, I think he's got some, some real upside. And, and I guess the silver lining of what the, the Nets are going through right now because they're getting a good look at their four rookies, uh, not only Cam Thomas and Deron Sharp, but Kessler Edwards and David Duke Jr. And they're seeing that those guys bring some energy and, and certain talents to the game and, and are, are really good uh, developmental prospects. So uh, their depth, hopefully, will get a little bit better. But, uh, but still, overall, uh, they, they need to get back uh, to playing some decent defense because uh, their defense has broken down tremendously uh, since Christmas. New York Newsday's Greg Logan taking a bite of the Big Apple. Uh, the Nets 
still have the best road record in the NBA at 14-4, and four, which is really astounding. Uh, you know, when you consider the travel schedule of teams and so on, they've done a great... And, and Kyrie's only played two games. Uh, but uh, when you look at the East, and Chicago now is grabbing a little bit of a stranglehold with three-game lead over the Nets in the loss column. But look who's starting to make a move. Miami has played very well. They've won seven of the last ten. Uh, Philadelphia, in particular. And Joel Embiid's on a tear. I think he's had eight straight games of over 30 points. Philadelphia is now starting to make a move. And we talked about this early on. The East was going to be tougher, tighter, and stronger than we've seen recently. And it's starting to bear fruit now. Absolutely. You know, I, I always felt that when some of these top teams uh, got off to slow starts, you know, you'd get some sort of a mid-season correction where things would go back toward the mean. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the heat uh, uh, heating up, so to speak, and uh, and the 76ers. There's no way the 76ers were going to stay down that long, although they still have the Ben Simmons situation that they're dealing with. So, uh, you know, their life is, is as complicated as some of these uh, other teams. And uh, and then the, the one that, that really impresses me recently is the Bucks. Uh, okay, they've they've lost two in a row, apparently, so they're six and four in their last ten. But, you know, they just came into uh, Brooklyn and uh, and didn't have Drew Holiday, who's their stopper. And uh, they did get Middleton back with Giannis, and they just beat up the Nets. And, and they have beaten them up uh, uh, all season this year, both in uh, preseason and the season opener and then the other night. And uh, so they are – I just – I don't know. I kind of feel like they have the Nets number right now. And so they're they're going to start to move up the the ladder here pretty soon, you know, as soon as they sort through some of their problems. But uh, but yeah, it's a it's a tough deep conference, and uh, the Bulls are really actually kind of surprising me with uh, with how they're uh, how how strong they are uh, recently. And uh, uh, you know, somebody was saying the other day, one of the NBA commentators. Uh, was talking about how much he loves uh, Zach Levine and, and what he's doing for that team. And so, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be very, very tough out. And so that's where the Nets are uh, on Wednesday is in Chicago to play that team. And, uh, you know, chances are it could get ugly. Not only that, uh, it's, uh, look, uh, DeMar DeRozan has been a tremendous addition to the Bulls. He and, and Levine, I think right now, if I'm not mistaken, they are the highest scoring tandem in the NBA, averaging 56 points a game between them. Uh, you mentioned Philadelphia. They've won seven in a row. You mentioned Ben Simmons. Well, I was reading an article today where they were picking, uh, they picked six teams that they think are going to be very active before the trade deadline next month. Philadelphia is one, Boston, Atlanta, Indiana, Sacramento, and Portland. Uh, I'm intrigued with the mentioning of Portland because every time you hear Portland might be interested in a trade, Damian Lillard's name comes up. And you know as well as I do, Greg, that guy is a roster changer. He's a game changer. He is. Uh, you know, and, and I, but I thought I just read something in the past few days uh, when I was, you know, looking at Portland that, that he talked about uh, being loyal to the franchise and so on. So I don't think he's, He's like campaigning to move or anything like that, uh, but if he's available, uh, yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna get a lot for him. Uh, he's a he's a tremendous player and he's in his prime. So uh, I I would think you know he might if if they're making him available, uh, he would be the number one target in the market uh, in my view, uh, more so than Simmons. Just because he's he's a more well-rounded player. I mean, Simmons is a great defender, uh, but you know the the lack of the outside shooting is uh, is a real drawback there. Do you think is there any scenario that you can think of that the Nets might be interested in making a move? And the fact is, what do they have to move? I, I mean, you keep the big three aside. Joe Harris is going is going to be back if he's not already. Uh, what what do you what could you possibly have that you'd like that you would move? You know, I don't see it uh, because I think they made their moves uh, in the off season. Uh, 
uh, to get a few uh, guys, you know, to fill out the uh, lineup. And and I don't and they don't have uh, draft picks that they can ship or anything like that. Uh, so I, I just can't see them trading any of the big three because the whole point was to get those guys together. And yeah, they're they barely played together. They didn't play together last night because Harden was out with an injury. Uh, uh, maybe they'll play together in Chicago, but there's a chance Irving could be out with an ankle injury. We've got to see how that responds. But uh, uh, I I just think they're committed to the big three. I, so, so therefore, that takes all the major moves uh, off the table. And, uh, and you know, to me, they could just do something minor. Harris hasn't played for quite a while. He would be attractive, but he's he's just as attractive to the Nets because they've missed his outside shooting to space the floor. So that so often when when they only have uh, two stars playing at home, they need that third guy who is who can reliably uh, space the floor. Patty Mills was doing it for a while, but he's hit a slump here recently. And I think they need Harris back, and he's getting pretty close. Uh, I don't know if I Nash was asked about it yesterday. He said he's not even sure if Harris is on the court yet, but he did say recently that he thought it would be a two-week window. So I I, I expect Harris back in another week or so. Greg Logan of New York News Daily. I, I know you you follow the Nets, but you have an occasional wandering eye towards the Knicks. And, and I'm watching them last night. They're playing San Antonio, who's not very good. Um, and uh, the Knicks uh, got them at Madison Square Garden, where they actually have had a losing record at home. But you know, Julius Randle hasn't learned what it's like to play in New York, as evidenced by his actions in the past week. Look, you know as well as I do, Greg. In this town, you uh, you have to understand what the fans are all about. If you embrace the fans, they will embrace you. Well, he decided to you know to do some rude and lewd things, and it cost him 25 grand. And he gets booed last night to the point of where the fans are saying, Randall blank. <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I don't care who you are, how tough you think you are. That's got to bother you. I, absolutely. And I think the fact that he had such a poor game last night uh, suggests that, you know, now he might have put himself in a position where he's kind of, putting pressure on himself to deliver like the superstar uh, he thinks he should be. And so, uh, so now he's, he's sort of created a little more self-imposed pressure. And to me though, I I'm actually kind of shocked that the Knicks fans turned on him that quickly. I mean, okay. He, he had his outburst, uh, but he uh, publicly apologized for it. And you would think that, you know, Okay, fans are fans, but you would think they would get past it uh, pretty quickly. But you know, we're we're through a, a different portal here into some other kind of alternate reality now. I'm surprised that the Knicks fans turned on him uh, the way they did last night, and uh, uh, now he's he's got a big problem on his hands because if that's going to become a thing, and and possibly keep up then uh, that's not going to help the Knicks uh, at all. And uh, But I, I think he just, you know, now now it's on him. He's got to turn it around and, and play up to his standards, uh, the standards that he showed last season, and start to deliver for that team. I mean, a, a lot of players have gone through it in New York at some time and have expressed frustration. Even Patrick Ewing did at one point. But Ewing never got booed uh, like that. You said you said that Julius Randle thinks he's a superstar. Do you think he's a superstar? I think he's a very good player. I I I've seen you know I've seen him at times have great games against the Nets, uh, where he looked the part of the superstar. But you know those guys have to do it every night. So uh, it's like you know you want to be LeBron James, you got to deliver the way LeBron James delivers every night, the way Kevin Durant delivers every night. I mean Durant is on a streak right now. I don't know how many games it is, but he's got I don't know twelve straight 25 plus point games something like that and he's going to break a, a record that he set last year of 14 straight so uh uh you know that's that's the way you have to do it to be on that level and and i haven't seen that level of consistency from randall but he certainly 
he's super talented and well worth the, what the Knicks did to get him and uh, and and what they paid him. So uh, you know now he just has to ha- has to play up uh, to that standard that he sets for himself. I don't think the Knicks will do this, but I would not be above trading Randall because I think you can get a lot in return. Uh, Randall would be a guy that would be a complimentary piece to a team that's got the championship aspirations, and I think the Knicks would get a lot in return. It's just my feeling that I think they should be building around R.J. Barrett. Uh, What I saw last night, not the first time, this kid has got a tremendous amount of talent, and he gets to, he's more he's become more aggressive with each passing game. Steve Nash would love to hear you say that because <laughs> Steve is his godfather. But uh, but uh, I've always liked R.J. Barrett's game. But you know he didn't he didn't develop uh, as as quickly as Randall did. Randall he's he's got a couple of years on Barrett, and he came in earlier and has more experience. And so he uh, kind of ascended to the leadership role with uh, the Knicks, uh, and and Barrett has taken some time to develop. But I I love him, and and the other guy I think who has tremendous upside because he's so athletic is Obi Toppin. Yep. You know, maybe he can develop into yep. a, a top uh, frontline player. So so uh, you could be right in terms of of what Randall could bring because he's established. And, and so there's no question that, uh, that you could get a lot for him, you know, but then it, it, you've got a decision to make. Uh, you've built all this marketing around Randall. They're 2021 now. And, uh, and like at the cusp of the playoffs. And so do you just try to hunker down and, and fight your way into the playoffs with this group or, you know, I, I just think it depends on the take. I, I don't know who they would go after, who they would target, but uh, uh, I would think you could get a lot for Julius Randle, both in, in terms of players and picks. And so, so, but then, but then once you, if you make a move like that, and if picks are a huge part of it, then uh, are you building for the future instead of playing for the present? Well, the present is just, you know, look, I, I'm not going to make, a, make a, a, a bet on whether or not the Knicks are going to go into the playoffs, not, not at the halfway point of the season. There's still a lot of games to be played. Uh, the Nets go into Chicago tomorrow. Now, you probably think they will not have James Harden? No, uh, they said that they are going to have James Harden. Okay. They, uh, they just were, were playing it cautious uh, with his uh, – with his injury uh, last night, because I, I think they felt like uh, uh, that that they wanted to protect him and save him for that that game in Chicago. Uh, so, you know, they're saying it's it's not that serious. The the thing that happened though is that in the fourth quarter last night. Uh, Nasir Little dived for a loose ball and went between uh, Kyrie Irving's legs and really upended him. And Kyrie came down in an awkward way and rolled his left ankle. Uh, and he stayed in the game. He shook it off. He said he was fine to go in Chicago. But, you know, it's one of those things. Let, let's see how it comes out uh, the next day or two, you know, before that game. So who knows if they'll have all three. But, uh, but they did basically just preserve uh, Harden for that Chicago game as a matter of, uh, you know, he, he, he played 44 minutes in the overtime against uh, the Spurs on Sunday. So I think they felt he needed the rest and uh, needed him fresh for that game. Now that game is a, it's a nine o'clock game locally in Chicago. That's kind of a late game. It's gotta be a, it's gotta be about television, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, that's another one of the ridiculous things in the schedule, uh, you know, to, start that game at nine o'clock in Chicago is crazy. That's, that's all about TV. It's, it's, it's like taking a, a Midwest game and putting it in the West coast slot, I guess. Yeah. Now I hear that. Look, uh, it, it, but it's a game that's going to draw a lot of interest. Uh, these are the two best teams right now, record wise in the Eastern conference and the bulls at home have the same record that the nets have on the road, 14 and four, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. I think it's going to be a, a very interesting. Game. I, I can't wait for that game. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be a must see game. I I totally I totally agree. Excuse me. And uh, you know, you mentioned uh, DeRozan and and the difference he's made for that team. You know, I've always felt 
that he's been uh, undervalued uh, throughout his career uh, simply because uh, his game is the mid-range game. To me, he's the best overall mid-range shooter in the NBA. I mean, you could put Kevin Durant in that category too, uh, but uh, DeRozan is a master of the mid-range game, knows how to get to his spots and get open and just create space for himself. And, uh, and so the anal- analytics folks may not like his game that much, but I've always loved it because I feel that guy is a winner. And, and he knows how to play uh, within context. He, he did it in Toronto, and he's doing it in Chicago right now with a, a really good uh, supporting cast around him. So, so I, I always look forward to watching him because I just think he's one heck of a player. Before I let you go, I don't know how much of a historian you are, but uh, it was January 11th, 1984. The Denver Nuggets beat the San Antonio Spurs 163-155 to in the highest-scoring regulation NBA game. If I'm not mistaken, didn't Denver, wasn't Paul Westhead their coach? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a good enough historian to know for sure if he was there at that time. But I know if he was, it wouldn't that that, that kind of score certainly wouldn't surprise me because that was his game, you know, and uh, and that's the way he played with the Suns and and uh, uh, so that that absolutely would not surprise me. He was a he he played a fun style of basketball. I must say that, but not not traditional at all. Now the three point shot existed then, but could you imagine if it was the volume of threes was like it is today? Oh my God! You know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the other day, uh, I think it was the Bucks came in and they launched I don't know fifty or sixty threes against the Nets and uh, and the Nets, you know they like to play with the three ball, but lately their three point shooting is way off and uh, uh, and and their volume of three point shots is way off and and that's kind of a reflection again of not having uh, Joe Harris in the lineup and uh, and kind of having other guys uh, forced to take uh, three-pointers. And so, um, uh, but that's a huge part of the game, and, and you win with it, and, and that's how Portland won last night over the Nets. Well, appreciate the insight as always, Greg. Keep up the great work and, and stay safe. All right. You too, Howard. Thank you. Greg Logan of New York Newsday taking a bite of the Big Apple with yours truly, Howard David. It's, um, I, uh, I get the big kick out of Beat writers to me, and I've, I've, I've known a lot of them over the course of my life in, in doing NBA basketball and, and in NFL football as well. But I've always gotten to, to understand that how hard it is to do what they do. Uh, they, they show up a couple hours before the game. And they go in the locker room and, and talk to players and talk to coaches. And coaches usually have a, a pregame uh, press briefing. Uh, and then they, they cover the game. And then after that, they run in the locker room and they get the, the post-game interviews and they talk to the coaches and so on and so on. And then they go back to their position in the arena and write the story. I mean, they, they, that's a long day, man. And you're traveling and all of that. I give them a lot of credit. I really do. I mean, I've, had, I've been partial to, you know, certain like Greg Logan, like Mark Canizero, uh, like Steve Serby. Um, I, I don't know. A lot of guys that I can't think of off the top of my head. But they do a hell of a job, and they work really hard at it. And uh, and a lot of times, uh, they get negative feedback from players because they didn't like something they wrote about them and so on. For the most part, the guys are accurate. I mean, they, they, they pride themselves on being accurate and telling the truth. And if the truth hurts, so be it. But they're going to still write the truth, you know? Stay safe, folks. Thanks for joining A Bite of the Big Apple with me, Howard David. Join me again.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.